Let me begin this morning by saying thank you for the invitation to preach here. I love preaching. I enjoy it. And wherever I go and get an opportunity to preach, I usually have great excitement. But I have a special measure of excitement when Bethany calls. And, and I mean that. Uh, a few months back, Pastor Steph called me and said, I'm going to be on sabbatical for a number of Sundays. Would you be available? And I said, absolutely. What dates do you need? And he said, I'd like you to take the first two Sundays of December. I said, fantastic. Count me in. And I know he's rounding third base and heading back towards home here in a couple of Sundays away. And that's a good thing because um, he'll be renewed. And the church will be looking forward to having him back. And in this kind of transitional time, you've been a sheep without a shepherd. And that's not always good. So it'll be good to have Pastor step back. But before then, I get an opportunity to spend a little time with you. And as I said earlier, I always enjoy preaching, but I enjoy preaching at Bethany. And one of the reasons is because you're a good congregation to preach to. You, uh, you seem to enjoy meat. And that's a good thing. And uh, salad bars are fun but we need some protein every once in a while, and it's good to get it. And I'm glad that when I come to Bethany, there's this anticipation of hearing something from the Word of God, a message from God's heart. I first became connected with you just by way of context. About four years ago now, I was helping an agency in Surrey called New Hope Community Services, which is a refugee assistance society. And you were bringing in your first refugee family, and I've heard that you've taken care of them and released them to productivity, and now you have a second family, and I just want to, good on you guys, uh, not every church can do it again and again, and uh, I was hearing the story when I came in this morning, like, I thought you took on a challenge, what, three years ago, so you decided to raise the stakes and take on a bigger challenge. Okay, you, you really like testing God, don't you? you? You think, okay, if God can do this, let's see if he can do this, and you raise the ante, but at the same time, I think it's a good thing. Um, uh, with man, all things are impossible, but with God, everything is possible, and I believe you're leaning into that. Uh, the agency I work with, New Hope, uh, about four years ago now, we, we were trying to respond to the refugee crisis that was precipitated, and we went to Surrey and bought a 13-unit apartment building and have filled it up with 10 refugee families, three Canadian families living in community. And the basic idea, some of you are aware of it, is that uh, a refugee family, and I use the word family, comes to live at New Hope, uh, all legal on top of the table. There's nothing illegal happening. It's all people that are recognized and validated as, as refugees can live at New Hope for up to 24 months. And in that 24-month period, they are helped, instructed, guided, programmed to get a job, learn enough English, get the kids in school, get productive, because before the 24 months are up, there's the expectation that you will be on your feet walking out the door. And in the last four years, we've assisted over 35 families rolling through the system. This fall, four families graduated, four new families come in, so there's constant turnover, but there's the same steady expectation that when you get here, we need to help you find your feet, get on your feet, get walking, and we're a success when you walk out the door. And that's what we do, and I appreciate the fact that you get it because you do it with your family. Some of you have been very kind to New Hope because over the years we've had needs, and if you would like to help us at our year end, um, why don't we meet afterwards, okay? And you want to greet me at the back. I'll be glad to talk to you about maybe you'd like to assist us in what we're doing. I, I appreciate that. So having said that, 
my context today is, is talking about hope. Hope. And really, it's against the backdrop of hopelessness. Some in the room today have come to church and are up against a very, very difficult situation. Whether it's hopeless, it's certainly lacking in hope, you know you've got some challenges. Whether it's in your family, whether it's in your workspace, whether it's in your own personal life, whether it's medical, whether it's financial, whether it's interpersonal, I'll bet you in a room filled with as many people as this, there are people that if I were to say, put your hand up if you're facing challenges, you'd say, yeah, we are. And your hope factor may be strained. Let me drop a little backdrop to talk about hope. Did you know that one in 12 Canadians is on some kind of medical prescription to assist them with their depression and discouragement? One in 12. From a medical standpoint, are so overwhelmed by life that the medical community says, help, let us help you with that. Some of us may find that a little alarming. Let me push it a little further say it would be, but for the fact that in the United States of America, our neighbors to the south, that number is one in six. A lot of people find life overwhelming and are doing what they can to get some help with it. I want to tell you a story just by way of backdrop. Uh, last week, my eldest daughter, she lives in the city of Houston, Texas. I was down to visit her. It was American Thanksgiving. It's a great time to visit. A lot of love, a lot of hopefulness. Uh, the organization she works with once a month provides a meal to the Ronald McDonald House. And it was their time to go and provide the meal. She organizes it for the company she works with. She says, Dad, you're coming with me to Ronald McDonald House. And I always listen to my daughters. They're at an age now. I don't have kids anymore. I have adults. And when adults give you advice, you'd be wise to listen to them. Dad, you're coming to Ronald McDonald House on Tuesday night. Great. What am I doing? She says, you're serving ice cream. Okay, if that's what I'm doing. And as that Evening unfolded at 6 o'clock, the team that had prepared supper opened the doors to the kitchen, eating, dining area, and the people had been waiting for a meal came pouring through. Five or six of the kids, there were about 75 people in total between parents and children that night, five or six of the kids had no hair, and I would imagine that they were fighting some form of cancer. Um, Five or six of the kids were too weak to be mobile on their own. They came in wheelchairs. A number came with their parents, and you could see them clinging to the arm of their mother as they made their way down the food line, because even though it was food they were receiving and there were smiles on the, on the servers, there still was a strangeness to it all. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, oh my. And later that evening after we'd served the meals, I mingled it because I'm just a social person. I can't stop doing it. I went and visited tables. Uh, it's the pastor in me, I guess. And, and talked to people about what was going on, trying to encourage them. Another story. I have a, a friend. Uh, she's in her late 60s. She has experienced... Uh, Later in life, marital divorce. It has been hugely economically consequential to her. She's not managed life well, she nor her former partner. And as they come to which, or as she comes to what should be her retirement stage, 
she's worried she can't afford to retire. She needs to continue to work. Uh, she's up against it. Uh, she's worried about facing the future. And I could go on and on on a larger societal scale. You can spare, scarcely turn on the TV or open up your web browser and not hear of some tragedy somewhere. Lives being taken by a gunman. Natural disasters taking the lives of people. Huge decisions being made on an international level that greatly affect you on a personal level. If you're a person that just looks at life, I would not be shocked with you today if you said, yeah, it could be pretty hopeless, isn't it? Whether that be on a personal level, on an interpersonal level, or an international level. And so I, I, re I put that down as a backdrop. You know, if you go to a jeweler and he wants to or she wants to show you the beauty of a piece of jewelry, they usually lay it up against a black cloth so that the light sparkles off it. I've laid down a backdrop because against that black backdrop, I want it, I have the audacity to say to you today that there is hope, that the God of the Bible is a God of hope. And whatever hopeless situation you, your loved ones, people you know find themselves in, the message of Christmas is that Christmas means hope. I thought it would be good to give a definition. If we just turn the next slide. What, what does hope mean? And I went searching for it, and I picked up one from the Collins English Dictionary. It says that hope is the feeling or expectation that things will get better in the future. If you have hope, if you have hope, regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in, you have the feeling or expectation that as dark and as desperate as things are, you have the expectations that things will get better into the future. You have hope. The Christmas story is about hope. When the angels first connected with uh, the shepherds on the hillside that night and the night of the birth of Jesus, they, 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 they exploded into the darkness of the night because there was no night lights on. <laughs> Think back with me. <laughs> Several thousand years ago, they didn't have any night lights. <laughs> if it was late in the evening, it was dark. How dark was it? Uh, dark. <laughs> and when the angels exploded into that situation, it startled the shepherds. They were shocked. It, in fact, the angels first said, fear not. Because isn't it funny how when things explode into our lives, our first reactions, adrenaline hits us. And for many of us, <laughs> they were legitimately startled. The angel says, fear not, for I bring you great news of good joy. That on this evening there has been born to you in the city of David a Savior. That's the word the angels used. A Savior. Somebody who will save you. Somebody who will rescue you. Somebody who will step into your situation and change it for the better. Uh, I'm a big hockey fan. Please don't judge me. <laughs> I, I like the Edmonton Oilers. <laughs> we got Connor McDavid. I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> He's our savior. <laughs> Here in Vancouver, Last year or two years ago now, the general manager drafted a young man by the name of Elias Pedersen. You're going to be okay, Canucks fans. You've got Elias Peterson or Pedersen. 
You have a say that the future could be better. The people of Israel were locked in a time of intense bondage, politically, socially, economically, religiously. It was not a good time for them. And the angel comes along and says to you, there is born this evening a Savior. We could sing that familiar hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Captive Israel. The nation was not free. It was in captivity to a political system, to a social system, to a religious system. And the message of the angels is, there's a Savior born tonight. The message of Christmas for you and for me today is that whatever bondage, whatever we are up against, wherever we find ourselves, there is hope. That the God of hope of the Bible has entered into our lives. In very simple, practical ways, how does that affect us? Let me just put all the cookies on the lower shelf, okay? <laughs> you reach for as many as you need, as much as you have to have. This is not high and, and, and complicated. This is very simple today. Christmas means hope to us. I... Uh, I think of people that are down, down. I mentioned earlier people get depressed. Um, if you're depressed today, I, I understand. Um, I have a friend who is battling depression to the point that she has been hospitalized to help reset her brain chemistry, but also to protect her from hurting herself while she heals. I visit her. Um, and I've come to realize that the healing required is deeper than just pharmacy. It's not just medicine, though medicine is, is essential. Don't ever misunderstand me. Medicine is essential. But on a much deeper level, her soul needs healing. She's a believer. Really? Yes. And so I talked to her about why are you so depressed? It's a gentle question. It's not meant to be adversarial. And she admits to me that I have, this is what she says, I have done some bad things, Pastor. And I say, really? And she says, those bad things weigh heavily on my soul. She asks me, and she says this to me, don't you know that there is a lake of fire reserved for liars? And then she follows up with, and I have been a liar for most of my life. I've lied to my family. I've lied to my friends. I've lived the lie. I deserve to go to hell. And you know, and hear me out here now. On the one hand, she's half right. She deserves to go to hell. The truth is, we all deserve to go to hell. None of us here deserves heaven. Oh, I'm not that bad. Well, that's true, but none of us has earned the right. 
The message of hope at Christmas is in the face of people that all of us, if we were to be evaluated, assessed, would come up below the fail line. The message of Christmas is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish. The message of hope at Christmas is that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. The message of hope at Christmas is that if God be for us, and the implication is, and he is, God is for you, who can be against us? Romans 8.39. And one of these amazing messages that we have the opportunity to experience, live, proclaim, show, model, example, is that God is actually not against us. He's actually for us. We believe in a God of hope. And as I listen to her speak, she goes on, because often the sickness is deeper than just logic. It's not just, oh, don't believe that, believe this. It's a very deep level, she says to me, I am unlovely and unlovable. How can God love me? I'm not worthy of that love. And the message of hope at Christmas comes ringing through clearly that 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. The message of the Christian gospel is God has not abandoned you. He does not hate you. He loves you and is ultimately for you. Chances are in a room like this, somebody can resonate with what I'm talking about. Um, chances are if you're a teenager, there's been times when you looked, looked in the mirror and said, I am so stinking ugly. It's funny how adolescents can be hard on us. If not we ourselves and those around us, we judge ourselves, we beat ourselves up, we let others speak into our lives that have no business speaking about our lives, and we come to conclusions that are so far from reality. I am unlovely, I am unlovable, I am unloved. And the message for the teenagers today is you are loved. You're loved by the God of the Bible because he loves you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to become lovely. In fact, even if you're not lovable, which I get, he loves you. God has poured his life out for us because he loves us. The message of Christmas is a message of hope. He loves you enough to die for you, to forgive you, to give you mercy and forgiveness. There's another whole dimension of how it means hope today. Christmas means hope for the discouraged. Let me give you a second example. And when I say discouraged, I'm not talking depressed, because I'm not depressed. I'm not depressed. And then we often get a verse of that. I get that kind of thing. You know, the doctor will say, are you depressed? Well, I'm not depressed. I'm just down, just discouraged. And there are times when we're discouraged. I have another friend who's uh, disappointed and discouraged in life. And I'm sure this wouldn't apply to you, but trust me, it has applied to others. He's a Christian, uh, but he feels like his church has let him down. He's poured his life into the people of God. 
And it feels like at the end of his season of gardening, when the harvest should be coming in, there's two small carrots and a half dozen peas in his pocket. You mean after all I've done, this is what I receive? He's discouraged. And uh, he's so discouraged that he stopped congregating. Do you know what that means? He stopped going to church. He's just discouraged. He feels like it hasn't been worth it. Why would I keep on doing it? Unless we think that he's unique, there is a great Canadian drop-off happening. Uh, there are two kinds of people in the Canadian church circles, or at least from the statistics. There, when it comes to church going, there are the nuns who have never gone to church, and you'd be surprised how frequent that is today, and the duns. You are neither, by the way. The fact that you're here, you do not qualify in either category. The nuns and the duns. He's one of the duns. I'm done. And so we talk. He talked. And I want to, I mean, maybe you feel you could relate to what he's talking about. Have you ever felt that way, that sometimes in life you're putting in more than you're getting out? It might be in your church, it might be in your job, it might even be in your children because we pour our lives into our children. It could even be in your marriage where you pour your life in. And it's sometimes in life when we begin to pull the carrots up to see if they're growing, we, we come to the, the sobering conclusion or feeling that, that we've put a lot more in than we're getting out. And I want to suggest to you today, if that's you or someone you know, don't miss the message of Christmas. This Christmas is a message that brings hope to the discouraged. And the reason why I say that is the God of the Bible knows what you are feeling, and He keeps track of what you have poured in. He keeps track of what you have invested. And He's an excellent bookkeeper. There's a great story tucked into the corner of Luke's gospel, hidden inside the parable of the Good Samaritan. And most of us are familiar with that story of a man going down the road to, from Jerusalem to Jericho, getting mugged, getting taken advantage of, people not helping him, people not helping him, or this Samaritan person helping him. But at the end of the story, there's a, a little nugget that often gets overlooked. It talks of this Samaritan, this person, and I think the person is supposed to represent Jesus, this Samaritan picks up the wounded traveler, transports him to an innkeeper's hotel, and he gives the innkeeper some money saying these words, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I like that. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. But I think of us this morning, that's a hopeful truth. God has knocked on the door of your life and asked you to carry a load that is heavier than normal. It may be a child with huge needs. It may be an aging parent with huge demands. It may be a troubled situation in your life or your work or your home. It may have some personal difficulties for you. 
And as you look at what you are carrying, you think, oh my goodness, I carry more than everybody else does, or I carry more than they do, or I'm putting in more than they're putting in. And I want to suggest to you in the grand scheme of things, the God of the Bible is an excellent bookkeeper. When he comes, he will reimburse you for any expense, any extra expense. It's his promise. He knows what you're carrying. And if the God of the Bible comes to you in this season and asks you to take something on, it's not just Pastor Steph doing a volunteer grab. <laughs> Sometimes that happens where things come across our path and we think, I don't want to do that. Well, that's more than I planned for. Oh my goodness, this wasn't part of the five-year dream. But sometimes the God of the Bible comes to us and says, can you carry this for me? Will you look after this? And when he knocks on your door and we think about what it will take, remember that he's an excellent bookkeeper. He keeps track of every expense. Let me give you a third example of uh, the idea of finding hope at Christmas, a very practical way. For sometimes some of us in life find ourselves despairing, not depressed, not discouraged, but just despairing. We're, we're afraid, we're overwhelmed, uh, frightened. Uh, it's true. Sometimes life is scary. I, I think back to my experience at the Ronald McDonald's house last week, and, and I won't lie to you, it touched me greatly. Um, I watched children observably under great medical distress. I remember one little guy coming to me and wearing pajamas. He's probably six or seven or eight years old. I don't know how old he was. He wasn't 12 or 15. He wasn't two or three. And I don't know why he picked on me, but he came to me and said, Mr., as I was serving ice cream, could I get a second scoop? No hair, big eyes, wearing pajamas. And I said, shh, don't tell anybody. Here's a second scoop. And, and you see him doing the happy dance all the way back to his table. Because for a moment, just for a moment, he's found some, some goodness in life. Hope is that belief that things may get better. As I wandered around the tables talking to people and and I'm wearing an apron, and it's not that I got my pastor hat on or a big Bible under my arm. In fact, they didn't know who I was from anybody else. But I, I took the time to say, how are you doing? Yeah. How long have you been here? Oh, my. How's it going? And so many parents says, well, some would say, we're making progress. We're coming up. It was bad, but it's getting better kind of thing. Some would say, well, we're not sure, but we think we can do this because they hadn't gone down yet as far as they think they might have to go down. And to a person, and it sounds trivial, but please don't misunderstand it, I said, well, where there's life, there's hope. And they said, absolutely. We're still fighting. But there's a deeper level for the Christian because sometimes life goes down. Um, we believe as Christians, and this is, this is Christian doctrine, uh, we believe that when we die, we don't recycle and start all over again. That's, that's not, we don't believe that. And 
as much as we say, oh, we need second chances and third chances, well, we don't believe that. That's actually Buddhism. And I'm not judging. I'm just saying that's not a Christian doctrine. Oh, we don't believe that? No, we don't believe that. Oh. We don't believe that when we die, we dissolve into a pile of ashes and it's all over. We don't believe that? No. We believe that there is meaning in life. Atheism would believe that. that you're born and you die. We don't believe, we actually believe that there is a life after this life. That the things we do in this life are not only consequential, but they're preparatory for a life to come. That as we put our lives together in a smart way in this life, it actually introduces us to another life. That the Jesus of the Bible gives us this hope that when we die, we go to be with him in heaven. And that the things of this life are not meaningless or inconsequential. They are preparatory. They get us ready for heaven. We believe that there is life after death. We, we sing songs, and, and I, I, I smile because much of our theology in life, what we believe, isn't learned by reading and memorizing the Bible. I mean that. Much of our theology, the things we believe, is not learned by reading the Bible. It's learned by singing songs. Uh, hymns, usually. I mean, I'm old enough to have hymns in the back of my head. But you know, this Christmas season, there's a... And maybe you'll sing it during the Christmas season. You know, the song, Away in the Manger. You know that one? Put your hand up. That shows me you're awake as well as listening. Good. Okay, good. Um, Away in the Manger. There's a, a, a verse at the end, and it's the final verse. And and it goes like this. It says, Be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. And one of the precious truths of Christmas is there is a life after this life called heaven. That the things we do in this life are preparatory. God shapes us to live with him. And whether we have 5, 25, 55, 85 years, these years are consequential because they shape us for eternity. Christmas means hope for the despairing. There's a great story from Canadian history, and I, I close with it. Um, a young man was born in the late 50s in the city of Winnipeg. Uh, not long after he was born, his family moved to the lower mainland because his dad knew. And please, my wife's from Winnipeg, so hear me when I say this. If you get a chance to get out of Winnipeg before winter, make the move, okay? Their family moved to the lower mainland. The man grew up in, to be quite an athlete. He was quick. He was a good runner. He excelled in soccer and basketball. In his senior year at high school, he began to experience some deep pain in his knee. And the medical community suggested it was ligament damage, but that wasn't the case. So they probed a little deeper and looked for some other kind of bone damage. And as they went deeper, they realized it was bone cancer. Um, as they looked at what their 
options were, they decided that the only recourse available to the family to preserve the young man's life was to amputate his leg just below the knee. And so he had that surgery. But the kid was indomitable in spirit. He was fitted for a prosthesis, and though he couldn't play soccer anymore, he returned to the basketball court with a vengeance. In 1980, he decided to do something very spectacular. He decided to run across Canada and raise funds to fight cancer. His journey, uh, his goal was to raise $24 million, $1 for every citizen of Canada at the time. His journey began rather quietly in St. John's, Newfoundland, when he dipped his toe into the Atlantic Ocean. He set out with his support team across Newfoundland and ran his way through the Maritimes, basically running a marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards, every day. He took Sundays off, by the way. Uh, as they came into Quebec, uh, the Quebecois are a little more excitable and passionate than the Maritimers were. The news media took it up, and it began to gather momentum. When he reached Ottawa, the politicians, and bless the politicians, when they see a good story and a camera in front of it, they're quick to get there. All of the politicians rallied around this man, and suddenly it became not only front-page news, it became national news as this young individual was running across Canada to raise money for cancer. Um, the, as his party managed to move its way through westward in Ontario, the story is told that severe pain erupted again just the other side of Thunder Bay. They eventually, eventually it became so bad the young man had to shut it down and he returned to his home here in the lower mainland and they determined that the cancer that they thought they had caught in the surgery had recurred in his leg. As he reached, reached that diagnosis, he vowed to return the next spring to finish his marathon, but he never did. He died in hospital six months later. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it was a young man named Terry Fox called the Marathon of Hope. And interestingly, we think, oh dear, what a disappointment. He'd hoped to raise one, I uh, hoped to raise 24 million. The actual first marathon raised 1.7 million, not even close. But today, since that time, we continue to have that Marathon of Hope. And the last summary is that as of 2003, 17, we don't have the 2018 numbers, $700 million has been raised by the Marathon of Hope. The belief that we can do something better, that something better may come. And I close with that today to remind us afresh that this Christmas season is about hope for the hopeless. And regardless of how black the backdrop is, the message of the Bible is that our God has not abandoned us. And in our captivity, in our stuckness, in our up-againstness, there is hope because we believe in the God of the Bible who is a God of hope. Christmas means hope. Today in a room like this, I, I would be amiss if I didn't take it right down to the very crystal clear level. If you have lived your life without Jesus heretofore, and whether you've been actively involved in religious life or this is your first time here, if you've been participating in a family that is a faith-filled family, but you know yourself that you have never embraced the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, 
it would be a good thing for you to embrace Jesus, the agent of hope. Because he brings to you this, this very crystal clear belief that things will get better. This firm conviction that there is hope. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, I wonder if this season is the time for you to do that. It does make a difference. The decisions you make in this life not only affect the experiences of this life, they literally alter the future of eternity. Jesus is God's gift to us, our Savior. Would you make that decision today if you haven't? Let's pray. Father, we gather, and uh, when we gather, there's a habit. There's a sense of we've done this before. And so we've gathered here in this building because we do it a lot. Thank you for giving us a place to meet. Thank you for giving a, a structure to meet in. Thank you for giving a, a team of leaders to help us regularly meet to worship. But we're mindful of the fact that in the midst of the routine and the habit, God speaks to our hearts and invites us to experience afresh the message. Not just history, not just data, but truth. That you do love us and you do care about us. Not just for eternity, but the here and the now. And I pray that you would bring renewed, fresh hope into the lives of your people today. That they might embrace you and find afresh that there is purpose and reason and meaning and strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.